focus on Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Today was the day that he rose again in victory and conquered sin and death. In Luke 24, 5 through 6, it says when, when Mary and, um, and a few other women came to the tomb to see Jesus's, uh, where he was buried, an angel appeared, and in Luke 24, 5 through 6, the angel said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's alive. Amen? He's alive. That's what we're celebrating today. Jesus lived a sinless life, and he died in our place, the place of every single one of us, past, present, and future, so that we could restore our identity and experience him as the sons and the daughters of God. You know, like when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The word he said, finished, it's the word to telstai. It means it was finished, it is finished, and it's being finished. It's a word that's continual. And so it's not talking about, hey, it's done for now. He's saying forever it's finished for all who will come. And so for all who will come, that includes us right now who are here. So what does it actually mean to be a child of God? You know, how do we walk in our actual identity? Because that's what Jesus died for. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. What does that actually mean? How do we become who we really are? Who has seen Moana? If you have children, you've seen Moana. Like, come on. If you have children and you haven't seen Moana, then watch Moana with your children because it's a really good movie. But in Moana, she's like, see, there's everybody. Everybody's like, ah, ha, ha, I'm here. See, everybody laughed. It was good. Okay. So in Moana, if you haven't seen it and you're an adult and you're like, I don't watch kids' movies, then I would also suggest watching it because it's hilarious. But Moana is this amazing movie. You know, this girl, she, like, the water calls her, and she's like, I don't know why I keep going back to the water. And her dad's like, get away from the water, Moana. Like, come do something else. And she's like, no, but I love the water. And she keeps going back to the water. And she's like, it calls me. There's something in me. I'm called to the water, right? And then eventually she, like, sneaks off and goes out to the water. And then she finds out, we were voyagers. Like, if you remember that part? She's like, we were Voyagers! And her grandma is like the crazy lady, and she's like, is there something you want to know? And she, you remember that part? Right, right. So then she finds out the destiny of her people. We were voyagers. No wonder I feel called to the water, because we were called to voyage. We were called to the water as a people. So she goes to the water, she becomes a real voyager, and then, you know, the rest is history. She saves the whole, you know, village and nation and all the islands from evil because she discovers her identity. Right, you see, like in the end, she's in the in the boat with the eagle guy. What's his name again? Oh, oh yeah, you're welcome. Right? Okay, so he's on the boat, and he's like, he's like, I don't know who you think you are, but maybe somebody lied to you, and you're not who you say. You know, this is not your place, and you're not gonna do it. And she's like, I am gonna do it. And she does that whole song like, I am Moana, and then like, like I was like, cry like you are Moana, like you're gonna do it. She goes back by herself, she does it, and the whole thing happens. So there's so many stories like that. It's like over and over and over again, right? In Hollywood, every story about somebody like, oh, let me tell you who you really are, you know, because then they find out who they really are so that they can do this big important thing that saves the world, right? But that's actually a true story. <laughs> that's actually a real scenario that's in the life of every person. There actually is somebody that you really are, that maybe you're not that person yet. And Jesus died so we could be that person that we really are. And so the, the plentiful examples are absolutely everywhere. You know, it's like The Matrix, Princess Bride. Like, I mean, there's probably 500 movies that are all about finding out who you really are so you can accomplish some great thing in your life. And who doesn't want to discover their identity and fulfill a great purpose? Like, raise your hand if your dream is to be nothing. Like, 
Nobody. Who ever had a five-year-old where you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, nothing. I don't want to do anything. I want to wither and do nothing. No, I've never heard, especially that. I've never heard a five-year-old say, I want to wither or, or anything like that. But none of us have a dream toward nothing. Is that, is that true? All of us want to have a purpose. We want to do something that matters. We want to be significant. But there, see, there's a time in our life sometimes when we start believing lies, like what Alicia was saying before, that God is going to bring truth into a lot of our hearts today. Because we start believing lies. You know, and those lies actually contribute to brokenness in our hearts and wounds, things that happen to us that sometimes we didn't choose. But because of those things, our view of self starts to shrink. You know, because you can ask a lot of 20, 30, 40, 50-year-olds, oh, what are you going to do with your life? The, you notice the dreams are smaller. <laughs> the dreams are more attainable. The dreams are easier to get to. It doesn't require so much dreaming like it did when we were young. Because when we were young, nothing had broken us, nothing had lied to us, nothing had destroyed what we could see in the future. Who am I? Why was I born? Right? Everybody asks these questions. These are like age-old questions. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? What am I supposed to do with my life? What we choose to believe about ourselves, whether true or false, will decide everything about our life. It's easy to know, you know, it's easy, or sorry, everybody wants to know their purpose. Everybody wants to know. And it's easy to start at what should I be doing? You know, I want to do something. What am I supposed to do? And what if the actual question is not, what am I supposed to do? But instead, it's who am I supposed to be? What if what am I supposed to do is not the first question that we're supposed to ask? What if the first question we're supposed to ask is, what am I supposed to be? What if we have to be something before we can do something that matters? What if the reason that we're often unfulfilled in our doing is because we're more concerned with what we do than who we be? And I know that's not proper English, but I wanted to put be in there again. That's it. That's, hip, that's hip-hop. That's what Mario said, so I'm going to go with that. What if the actual question is not what am I supposed to do, it's who am I supposed to be? What if we got to be something before we can do something? What if the reason we're often unfulfilled in our doing is because we are more concerned with what we do than who we be? Right? What if? What if? We're human beings, if you didn't notice. We got to be something. You know, nothing can produce something other than its own DNA. Is that right? Has anybody ever seen a coconut tree that produced bananas? Or a cat that had puppies, and it's like a miracle. Like, everyone's like, what happened? Like, how? How? It doesn't happen. Why? Because we can only reproduce what we are. We can only reproduce what we are. We can sometimes hide who we are, <laughs> but that's pretty exhausting if anybody's ever tried to do that. I've tried to do that before. Super tiring, super disconnected. That's why I got depressed. Don't do it. It sucks. So what does it mean to be human? Who are we supposed to be as people, as human beings? You know, origins are important. Anybody who wants to understand what something is meant for, what it's created for, you understand where it began. You go back. How did this start? What is this thing supposed to do? The source, the blueprint, the beginning, right? Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make Adam in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. I want you to notice the word they, not he. I'm going to go more into that. God forms this being, right? He gives this being the name Adam. In Hebrew, names are important. So in our culture, names are important to some extent. You know, you can ask somebody, hey, what does your name mean? And sometimes they might say, I have no idea. But most of the time, people have an idea. 
Well, in Jewish culture, they know exactly what their name means. You're not going to ask any Jewish person, what is your name mean? And they're going to be like, I have no idea. My parents just like the name David. You know, like they have an understanding what their name means and what that means for them. Because identity is conferred and inferred through their name. Throughout history, we have named things according to their intended purpose so that when someone hears the words, they can decipher what that thing is for. Example, bicycle. If you've never seen a bicycle, you still could decipher from the word bicycle that it's something with two wheels. No? So if I go into a room, someone says, find the bicycle, it doesn't matter if I've ever seen a bicycle, I'm looking for something with two cycles, two wheels, by two wheels. Do you understand what I mean? I don't have to have seen it before. I know what I'm looking for. Adam is the first person that God creates. Now, this is before gender-specific names Adam and Eve are used in the text. It is not until chapter 3 that Adam and Eve become a gender-specific pronoun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into that a little bit more, and you can study this in your own time if you want. You might have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> this is a podcast. This entire account, right, until after men and women are separated, has no gender connotation. It's just in Hebrew, there's no pronoun for, like, non-gender specific. So it uses he all the time. So Adam, he. But that's not actually what it means. We see in English, Adam basically means person, human. So that's the definition. Until we get into chapter 3 and you see Adam, Eve. So the word Adam, it's a lowercase Adam, and it means person. It's the word Adam taken from Adama, which is the earth, because it says God formed man from the ground and set him, called him Adam. So Adam was taken from the earth. So this word is used, Adam, for the male counterpart of the original right Adam and Eve later, but actually it's man and woman. So why does this matter? So why does this matter? Look at the name that he gave us, right? He said, let us make them in our image so that they may rule. Why does it matter? Look at the name he gave when he created the original, the first. Remember what naming means in Jewish culture. It means identity. It means the intention. What is this thing created for? When God named humanity, when he named us, person, human, Adam, what did he mean by that? Like I said, the word Adam is from the word Adama, which is the earth. It's like a play on words because it said God took and formed Adam from the dust of the ground. The Hebrew letters Al Dalet Mim, or El Dalet Mim, and El is Aleph these days. It's modern Hebrew instead of ancient Hebrew. But Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's the name that God uses to refer to himself. So when God refers to himself, right, El Shaddai, the provider. El Olam, everlasting. He's using this first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And he uses that word to infer spiritual. So anytime you see El, E-L, before something, it's inferring the spiritual nature of that thing. That's why God uses it in front of his own name. So that's the first letter that God uses in the name Adam, that he speaks over humanity, spiritual. See, every Hebrew word can break down into other meanings. If you've actually under, like if you've studied Hebrew ever, or even if you haven't, I would really encourage you, it's very interesting, very complex, and really deep. I'm not that deep into it, but I'm deep enough to know it's amazing. And I encourage everybody to get into that a little bit more, but it's, I could go on. Anyway, Dalit Meme, those two letters together, they mean blood. So we're created spirit and blood, taken from the earth. And these are the two sides of who we are. It's in our name. <laughs> it's in our name. Your spirit and your blood, your natural and your spiritual paired together. We're not fully human without both. We're not fully human without the natural and the spiritual. See, when sin entered humanity, what did we lose? We lost his presence. We lost the L. We lost the spirit side of who we are. 
so to speak, we kind of merely became blood, physical, focused on the natural. But that isn't who we actually are. It's who we became because of sin. And most people sense that emptiness of spirit, right? So they search for all types of spirituality, right? This is undebatable. Like, everybody's a spiritual gangster, right? Like, everybody has, like, the tank top, spiritual gangster on it. Like, everybody sees that. I was like, oh, it's kind of cute. But then I, it was, like, all about, like, spiritualism or whatever, so I didn't buy it. But anyway, everybody has, like, the tote, the handbag, the, all the things, like, a spiritual gangster. There's a lot of counterfeit spiritual things. Are there not? There are a lot of ways to experience spiritual things. But please believe me, you do not want the fake version in this case. You do not want the counterfeit version in this place. Has anybody ever been to Canal Street? I used to live right there. And let me tell you, you cannot walk down Canal Street unless it is pouring rain. And even then, somebody will walk up to you with an umbrella. But somebody will come up to you. Bags, 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 watches, 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 watches. You know, like two for 20, three for 30, five for 10. You're like, how does that work? Like, but it's like as many counterfeit things as you could ever want, right? But why would anyone choose a counterfeit thing when you could have the real thing? Anyone who can afford a real Louis Vuitton bag, trust me, is not out scouring Canal Street trying to find a fake one. You don't want a counterfeit when you can afford to pay full price. And trust me when I say that, you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for in your whole life. You get what you pay for in every situation, and it's the same when it comes to the spirit of who we are, the spirit side of what we're looking for. There's only one way, and his name is Jesus. Jesus restored the L, the spirit that brings life to who we are as people. You know, Jesus came preaching, preaching, repent, which means change the way you think, because the kingdom is near. The kingdom of God means the place where God is in charge, the place where God's rule, where his reign is established. In Mark 10, 25, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So when you're rich, what do you have? Things right? You have lots of things. Unless you're like a really awesome rich person, you give all your money away. But most rich people, they have a lot of things, right? You know you're rich because you've got a great house, you've got a car, you've got some stuff. You're not worried about things. You're not worried about money. And it's not wrong to have money, right? But the thing about being rich is that you have a lot invested into the natural. You have a lot invested into this life, into this earth. Focus, energy, attention. And one way that this can be problematic is because it's easier to believe the lie that this world is all that matters. It can temporarily fill a place that the spirit side of who we are is meant to occupy through distraction and comfort. Is that not right? I would say probably everyone in here, we are considered rich, by the way. So like every single person sitting in here, even if you live in the projects of New York, on the scale of the earth, you're considered rich. So, you know, you're in like the 5% at least, probably the ones. So let's like put some perspective on it. I'm not talking about just like people who are out there like driving a Rolls Royce. I'm talking about anyone who like eats every day. You are rich. <laughs> How unfortunate, by the way, that the rest of the world suffers. And I wish, anyway, there are, is a lot for us to do to bring the kingdom on earth. We are called to bring restoration to the earth, to alleviate the situations of people that are in poverty. We look at God so much. Why are all these bad things happening? He's looking back at us. Why are all these bad things happening? I gave you dominion. Go out and rule and reign and make some changes. <laughs> make some changes. But anyway... The eye of the needle that Jesus is explaining, it's easier for the rich to enter the, or for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about an actual thing. He's not talking about a, like a little tiny needle, a camel go through needle. That's impossible. Like who could do that? So that's why the disciples respond, well, this is impossible. And, and Jesus, obviously, he's not referring to a sewing needle, right? 
He's referring to a gate in Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle. Camels would come to that gate, and it was the only way to get in. The camel had to get down on its knees and lower its head to enter. And so the only pic the picture that Jesus is giving, it's not impossible, but it's hard because you're going to have to get humble. You're going to have to get down on your knees and acknowledge that it's not the natural that's going to bring you into the spiritual that you need. And so it's getting down in humility to enter. That's how you enter the place of the rule and the reign of God in your life. It's the only way into the kingdom. The Bible talks about being born again in John 3, 1 through 7. Has anybody ever heard the phrase born again Christian? It's like a popular phrase from the 80s, right? They're like, are you born again? Are you a born again Christian? <laughs> My mom used to say that. I don't know. I was like, what are you talking about? I was like a Christian. What does it mean to be born again? But it's because of this verse that Jesus talks about. It's because of this conversation he has with a man named Nicodemus. And so to be a born-again Christian began to be a distinction. But in John 3, 1 through 7, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. It's super weird. I can't even imagine. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. So we're born of water, obviously, when we are actually born, like in the natural we're born of spirit when we are born again, when we enter the kingdom with humility. That's when we're born again. We give our lives back to Jesus because he gave our lives, his life for us to get everything back. <laughs> so we give him our lives. And don't believe a lie that Jesus wants to be a part of your life. Has anybody ever heard that? Like, you know, just let him in. He wants to be part of your life. Give him something, a little bit, like some scraps. No, all or nothing. <laughs> it's all or nothing. <laughs> real popular. A reason that peop sometimes people struggle to follow Jesus is because they still think they're the navigator of their lives. Living in a power struggle is super exhausting. Has anybody ever been in like a power struggle type of relationship? It's like, well, I, we're doing this. And they're like, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. It's like, we're not doing that. And I said, we're going to do this. It's like, everybody's trying to like win. It's exhausting. My marriage is not like that, but you know, I just had to like I don't know this from experience. We have a great marriage anyway. But whoever has ever been in a power struggle knows it's not a way to live. <laughs> not a way to continue. Sometimes we do that with Jesus, though. You know what I mean? But Jesus, see, he's not going to try to one-up us. He's like, okay, you win. I'll just wait here. <laughs> You're like, well, I'm going to do it. He's like, okay. <laughs> so he's like, I'll just, like, sit here, and you can go around that mountain a bunch of times. When you get bored, just let me know, and I will point you in the right direction. <laughs> see, he's not going to struggle with us. He's, he, he's, he honors us. He's not going to struggle with us. If we don't want him in charge, he's like, I mean, not a good choice, but okay. You know? And hopefully in the meantime, where God is being gracious and he's waiting for us, we don't waste a season, a decade, or even a whole life. Because that's our choice. That's a choice we make. See, we will die in sin or we will die to it. We die either way. So it's like death or death. But only in one way are we offered his life in exchange. And so sin will always lead to death in our life. 
Whether it's physical death right now or spiritual death ultimately, the enemy's goal is to bring death. But when we die to self and we enter into Christ, we live again. That's the message of the gospel, to live again through him. In Mark 12, 14 through 17, it says, They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity who isn't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. This is Pharisees, by the way, who are trying to trap him because that's like what they're always trying to do. Can you imagine? Like Jesus is always like walking around Pharisees like, we're going to get him this time. Watch this. And they're like, we can tell that you're a man of integrity by the way you teach in accordance with the truth. And then they go, is it right to pay tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So see what, what they're, it says that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. See, word of knowledge right there. Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they bring the coin and he asks them, whose image is this? And they reply, Caesar's. And, they, and Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You know, Jesus lives in this perpetual state of like mic dropping. Like everything... <laughs> Everything he says, like, if you just read the red, like, open up the gospel, just read the red, you're like, dang, what? Like, I can't believe that happened. Like, constantly, or maybe it's, like, scroll dropping, because, like, they didn't have mics, so he'd be like, you know, imagine in the temple, where he's like, Isaiah 63, you know, it's like, it is me, I'm the Messiah. Like, imagine the disciples, they're, like, walking next to him, they're like, dang, do you see, oh, what, you see what he said, dang it, we're with him. You know, Jesus says, give to God Give back to God what is God's. Whose image is on you? God's. Give back to God what is God's. In other words, he's rebuking them for their false spirituality. And he's saying, hey, yeah, you're asking me like a little dumb question trying to trap me. How about this? (laughs) And then he's like, how about you give yourself back to God and stop serving the enemy? Quite a rebuke. But I suppose that question could be to us, too. Whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? There's a calling to give yourself back to the one whose image is on you. You know, just like our children are born in our image, they become the object, right, of our affection, our love. We, if we're good parents, we love our children. Obviously, you know, there's some parents who aren't good parents. Some of us may have had parents who weren't great parents. But if you're a good parent, if you're a good father, a good mother, you love your children. You know, the image of family is actually a reflection of God himself. It's the picture of his love. You know, you've been born to be the object of his love. That's how he loves you. When you look at your child, that's the same way that God loves us. Our first calling is kind of like to just lay around and be loved, right? It's like literally all we can do. Like, change my diaper. Like, I cost so much money. Love me. Kiss me all the time. I'm going to cry in the middle of the night when you're sleeping and you're going to have to care about me. You know, it's like all the time. You're just, you're just like, love me. That's all you're doing. We require complete dependency. You have like zero to offer at that stage, except like a couple Instagram pictures, which people didn't even have that like 20 years ago. There's just, just some smiles, you know, and that's after like two months or something, right? Some babies smile a little earlier, but you know what I mean. It's like, I love you. Okay. In exchange for a mind that's been affected by sin, we're given the mind of Christ. Okay. So I don't know how to transition there. Anyway. So in exchange for a mind that's been affected by sin, we're given the mind of Christ. That's what the Bible says. So every thought that enters our mind, we actually don't have to believe. (laughs) Every thought that enters our mind is not our thought. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had a thought and you're like, that's so weird. Why would I think that? Maybe it's not you. (laughs) Maybe you're not thinking that. (laughs) See, we have a real enemy and every thought we're actually meant to bring into submission to Jesus. 
See, the enemy's primary assignment in our life is to destroy our identity. So that's where I was connecting to the child thing. Because as we love them, as we're a good parent to them, they know they're loved because it's their first thing they experience is our love. And just like God, the first thing that we're meant to experience is his love, is his knowing us, is being present in that love relationship with him. You know, but we have an enemy and it's his assignment to destroy the, our understanding and our perspective of that love, which is called identity, right? Because when you're resting in that love, you know who you are. You know, sometimes the devil knows us more than we do. I would say that's a problem, right? If like he knows more about me than I do, because like guaranteed he's going to have some strategy to take me out. <laughs> but see, his main assignment is to make you believe that God doesn't love you, that you need to make your own way in life. It's in this way he'll destroy your purpose and he'll hopefully separate you from God because he's separated from God. And so he wants you to be separated from God like he is. You know, I show my kids this, um, this Amazon Prime series called Superbook. It's pretty cool. It's like the whole Bible, but it's like done really good, you know. So there was this episode that I, was, <laughs> I had on with Wild on, um, I don't know, Thursday or Friday. And the devil is in this episode, right? Which I'm like, is this too scary for them? Like, I don't know. Like, Pharaoh, watch this. What do you think? Is this scary? And she's like, no, it's, it's good. I want to see the one where Jesus dies. I was like, you do? Oh, okay. So I showed her the one where Jesus is on the cross. And she's like crying. She's like, I'm so sad that he's had to die. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about it, you know. But in the episode before that one, the devil comes on, right? And he's like, I'm going to, you know, say some kind of lie or whatever he does. And Wilde walks up to the screen and she goes like this. No. Like that, and then she like walks back, because he's like on the screen like this, and she walks, no, and just like walks back, and I was like, yes, that is, no, yes, no, so good. You already recognize, like, don't listen to him. <laughs> don't listen to that guy, he's not telling the truth. His main tool is lies. His main tool is lies. You know, he actually lies, and then he creates an infrastructure around that lie through people and situations in your life. The Bible refers to this as a stronghold. Has anybody ever heard that word, a stronghold? His best lies, by the way, are mostly true, which is like a little twist. Because the best thing that's, eat, like, if I put a tiny little drop of peanuts, right? So kids, are, kids apparently one out of, like, a million kids, is, or one out of two kids is allergic to peanuts now, apparently. So I'm told. Our kids can't even touch peanuts and then go to school. It's like, don't get a peanut near this school. Some kid might blow up. Like, I mean, it's like a big deal. You cannot have peanuts anywhere tell you, like, I had a wrapped thing for Sparrow, and the teacher's like, you know, this says on here that it's made in a place that processes nuts. I'm like, oh my gosh, we don't have nuts in it. So it's serious, right? You can't bring any nuts. If I were to put, like, a little tiny drop of peanut, I can guarantee that most people would not know there's peanut in it until they eat it, and then they start swelling up. Does that make sense? It doesn't have to be that I hand you a peanut. I can hand you some spaghetti. If I dropped a little peanut powder on there, there's still peanuts in it. You're still going to swell up. So that's what I'm saying. The biggest lie, the best lie that we take it it's mostly true, and it's something that's easy to consume, usually. And so de the devil starts with a foothold in Ephesians 4.27. It talks about that. It's a tiny little ledge where he can just kind of put his foot. And if, you're ever, if you've ever climbed a cliff face, you have to find a tiny little ledge first. Then you start drilling in your reinforcements that are going to help you to climb. That's the way it works. It's a tiny spot to put your foot, but then he's going to start to drill in reinforcements. Now there are patterns and there's habits. There's a foundation there. And once that foundation is built, if you leave that lie in place for too long, better believe he's going to build a stone fortress on that cliff face. And it's going to be so, it's, it's called a stronghold. And that thing is going to have to be dismantled. It's not like you can just be like, I'm just going to stop believing that. It has to be dismantled, taken apart in your life. 
because we have built all kinds of things around that. We've built community around that. We've built our lives around it, language, patterns. We've created a life around the presence of this lie because it's a fortress in our life. You know, this is not just where we need God to tell us truth, but we also need freedom, and we have to learn how to live without all the life that we've created around that lie. So sometimes it's not so simple, like, hey, just stop believing that lie of rejection. It's like, you don't understand. I've been rejected since I was two. It's like, I know, but I'm telling you, it's still a lie. I'm telling you, it's still a lie, and it's a stronghold in your life. But if you'll believe the truth, the true things of God will actually start to manifest in the place of the things the enemy has used to reinforce that lie in your life. He starts to build that foundation as early as possible so that we can't remember a time when it wasn't there. And that's his goal, because if you know the difference, you know, of course you can recognize, oh, well, that's not right. But if you don't know the difference, you won't know how to recognize it. But we have the Holy Spirit And because we have the Holy Spirit, he speaks truth to us, and he gives us the ability to see truth, to hear truth, and to dismantle those things that he's tried to prevent us from understanding who we are and how to live in the truth of God in our life. He exposes all the lies of the enemy. You know, in Genesis 2-7, it says God created man and named Adam, right? We talked about that. In Genesis 2-15, he gives him an assignment to work and take care of the land. So listen, he's created He's given an identity, then he's given an assignment. Do you see the progression? It's not that God said, hey, this is Adam, do something, and then, oh, also I love you. (laughs) No, 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 I've created you, I've named you, I've told you who you are, and now I'm going to give you this task to do. He was created, given an identity, and then an assignment. You know, your name is person, human, before it's Stephanie, Alicia, Mario. You're a human being first. This identity that's on the first person ever created is on you, whether you're male or female. We all have the identity first of being blood and spirit, of needing both of those elements in our life, or we can't thrive and we can't be fully human. You know, we're not simply called to do good things. We're called to Jesus first. We're not called to be important. We're called to Jesus first. And it's out of knowing him that obviously he will ask us to do good things and we will have desires to do good things. It's not like we live like little robots and it's like, oh, like Jesus, what do you want me to do? I, like he partners with us, he loves us, we have a brain. It's not like, we ha- you know, like we're just walking around robots, but there are good things he will ask us to do that we will respond to. You know, but to think that we have ultimate value outside of him is either ignorance or pride. That's what the Bible teaches. We have an opportunity to give back to Jesus what is Jesus's, which is us. We can give him what he paid for by giving him back the lives that he gave to us. You know, God's desires become our desires as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We all have natural gifts, right? But if we pursue things without identity, we will end up in a mess. In Galatians 5, in the message version, it refers to this as small-minded and lopsided pursuits. Has anybody ever read the message? It's really cool. Galatians 6, or sorry, Galatians 5. It talks about small-minded and lopsided pursuits. So even if we pursue the things that God has placed in our hearts, if we're outside of Christ, the return will be minimal because we have not actually started from the foundation of identity. We give up our lopsided pursuits when we can answer who we are before what we do. Before what we do. It's from that place of identity that everything else about our life will flow. In Matthew 3, 17, and I'm going to end with this. I'm almost finished, so if somebody wants to come up, 
on the keys or some kind of instrument, whoever you are, who's coming. Um, in Matthew 3.17, it's Jesus' baptism. Does anybody remember? He comes and um, John, the Baptist, appropriately named, um, baptizes him. And so as he's walking up to John the Baptist, um, he, he cries out, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he comes into the pool, or into the Jordan River, actually. And as he's baptized, he comes out of the water, and it says, the presence of God descended on him like a dove, and a voice said, this is my son, who I love, and in him I'm well pleased. This is when Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He's literally not done a thing for God yet. He, like, not a thing. He's just been in the wilderness, tested, trialed, comes out, and he goes straight into this baptism. Or sorry, the baptism is right before he goes into the wilderness. He's not done anything for God. He's actually about to go into a season of pruning. So in our life, be, be prepared. You know, you're like, I want to be used. I want purpose. And God's like, awesome, I'm going to cut off this stuff that's not going to help you. <laughs> I've been through it. If you, if you want to be used by God in a powerful way, please believe he will have to cut some things off of you <laughs> in the spirit. A lot of, Mario said, a lot of things, okay, a lot of things. So Jesus, he has this experience. This is my son who I love. In him I'm well pleased. So we have to understand this. We are, he is pleased with us before we do anything for him. There's nothing for him that we can do that makes him happier with us, more pleased with us, makes him love us more. And there's something that we have to understand in that moment of identity first before we can ever do anything that's going to matter and be fruitful. It's Sparrow at bedtime when we pray. I actually have her say, because that statement of identity will decide everything about you. If you know that you're a son or a daughter, if you know that God loves you and you know that he's happy with you, that corrects everything about wrong theology about God. <laughs> so Sparrow, when she goes to bed, I have her say, I am God's daughter, he loves me, and he's so happy with me. I make her do so happy with me. Because he's really happy with you, not just a little bit. So I am God's daughter, he loves me, and he's so happy with me. You know, a babysitter was at our house like two weeks ago, and Sparrow was doing something, I don't know, like something bad she wasn't supposed to do. And the babysitter was like, Sparrow, you need to stop doing that because your mom's not going to be happy with you. And Sparrow literally responded, no, that's not true. My mom is always happy with me. <laughs> the babysitter was like, what? But that's identity. That's identity. When you do something wrong, do you know God is not less happy with you? He still loves you. You don't have to go hide. It's the whole message of grace that Jesus took the sin and the shame and so we can come into his throne room with boldness and we can say, hey, I messed that up. Can you reveal in me why that got messed up? Because I want to heal so that that doesn't keep happening as a cycle and become a stronghold in my life. He wants to bring us into freedom. But he's never less happy with us. He never less loves us. He always loves us. He's always happy with us. You know, I am God's child. He loves me. He is so happy with me. Say that over yourself five times per day and see what happens. <laughs> say that over yourself. There's a prescription. I am so convinced that we need a whole, we'd have a whole lot less depression if we had a whole lot more identity. I say that from experience, because the only time I was depressed was when I couldn't see how to get to the things that God had put in my heart, and it sent me on a downward spiral. You ask people, what is like the primary cause of depression and anxiety? Hopelessness. What is hope? It's the thing that we hold on to unto faith. So if we don't have anything to hope for, we let go of the thing that's going to bring the thing to pass. Hopelessness is a pit. And if you're in hopelessness, you don't know Jesus. <laughs> or if you're in hopelessness and you do know Jesus, he wants to deliver you from hopelessness because he's the God of hope. 
Just like in Genesis 2, you know, if we want to make a difference with our life, God wants to bring us into hope. But he wants to recreate us, like we talked about being born again. Can I get the keys or guitar up? He wants to recreate us. He wants us to be born again in his spirit. He wants us to understand who we are. He wants to give us identity. And he wants to give you an assignment. He wants to give you something to do. But it's only out of that place of knowing who you are. It's only out of the place of knowing who we are. And so, you know, if there may be people here who don't actually know who they are yet. But, you know, I want to just invite everybody. Let's bow our heads for a minute, actually. Let's bow our heads for a minute. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. We invite the conviction of your spirit that actually brings new life that you are full of love, that you have no condemnation, that you're a God unto hope, that you're full of hope, full of love, full of compassion, full of forgiveness. And today as we celebrate your resurrection, we look at you, we look at all of the things that you provided for us. We look at all of the things that are in you and we welcome your presence into our lives right now. And if there's anyone here who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus, the God of hope, then I invite you into that place today. Because there's no time like today to find out why you were born and who you actually are. But he's going to spend time telling you who you are first. Because I'll tell you what, if you know who you are, you will do great things on the earth. You will do great things that not only leave a difference for now, but for eternity. People are starving for purpose People are starving to matter. They are starving for significance. You are not just called to do something good. You're called to do something that's God in your life. And he wants to use every single person in this room. And so if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, today is your day. Today is your day. And it's your choice. It's always our choice. God stands and he invites us and he welcomes us, but it's always our choice. So why don't we bow ahead if you're not already. And you know, if that's you and you want a relationship with Jesus, you don't have to understand everything about what that looks like. But here's what you need to know now. It's a surrender of your life. It's the word, the word repentance means to change the way you think. It means there's some things about life and the world and God and yourself and others that probably are a little bit off. And the Holy Spirit's going to come in and he's going to bring light and truth into your life. And it's the submission to that process. It's called repentance. And so if anyone wants that in their life, then I would invite you to receive him. And it's through repentance. Remember, it's that humility. It's the acknowledgement. I don't know. I don't have it all figured out. And so as we invite him, he then wants to recreate who we are. It's a process of being born again. And he wants to speak to us about who we are to him. And then he wants to give us things to do in our life that matter. So why don't you lift a hand if that's you, and I actually have um, some people, and myself included, who would love to pray with you afterward if that's you, but with all the eyes closed, why don't you just lift a hand, and if it's you, I will pray with you after, or one of our team will. Awesome, I see you, cool. Is there anybody else? Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to close the service, but if you would like some prayer about anything else, maybe something going on in your life. Or if you raised your hand that you'd like to receive Jesus, one of our team would like to pray with you about that and talk to you about next steps. Because we believe in the power of prayer. But I don't believe that a prayer is what saves you. It's what happens after you pray that prayer. It's the actual act of faith 
that that prayer initiates in our life. If we mean it, it will change our life. So there's going to be a team just right along the back. Feel free to go to them healing, um, just emotional healing, or if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, they can help you out with that. But yeah, we love you guys. So why don't you, why don't you stand? We are, we are done. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Hope you really enjoy the rest of your day and go out in blessing. We love you. That's our little, little, she was sleeping the whole service. Hi. Hi, Wild. She's the one who walked up to the screen and said, no. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, guys. Okay, well, we love you. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.